0: Hello everyone, I'm Joan Kerr. Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum, one of the Pentacrest Museums on the Central Campus. Our production partners are UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUI 89.7, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. It will also be available along with all programs in this series as a free podcast on iTunes. Tonight our topic is Japan. An ancient culture and the most modern of nations, Japan is comprised of nearly 7,000 islands and holds the world's 10th largest population, over 127 million people. Greater Tokyo is the largest metropolitan area in the world with over 30 million residents. And Japan has the world's third largest economy as measured by GDP and the longest life expectancy of any country in the world. Long an actor on the international stage, Japan's relationship with the U.S. has ranged from cordial and cooperative to adversarial in the extreme, facing one another as enemies in World War II. Its delicate arts and iconic architecture are known and treasured all over the world, and still many of us have done little but scratch the surface of Japan. Even the intense international interest following the tragic earthquake, tsunami, nuclear reactor threat, and personal devastation that hit the nation one year ago this month has been eclipsed in the minds of many by subsequent events. So we take the opportunity tonight to expand our understanding of Japan with an exceptional group of guests, beginning with the gentleman who's here with me on stage, Stephen Vlastos professor and chair of the University of Iowa History Department. Professor Vlastos is also a past director of International Programs Center for Asian and Pacific Studies. So I want to say thank you so much for being with us tonight.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me and making Japan the subject of this program.
0: Oh, absolutely. I know it'll be an interesting evening. And I think that the best place for for us to start is sort of with an overview, an historical context, a look at the, the culture, the long, long history and the more recent modern history.
1: Uh, since I, I try and fail to do this in <clears throat> 30, uh, 15 lectures in, uh, over the course of a semester, um, I, I am very anxious about uh, <laughs> trying to do this today without using up the entire program. But I guess that uh, if, if I need to identify a few features um, of Japan that both gives us some indication to Um, its historical development, and uh, what makes it um, somewhat unlike most other major countries. I guess I'd start with the uh, fact of geography. Uh, As you just said, it's an island uh, nation. It's made up of um, uh, four main islands, and then a a fifth chain of islands, and numerous others. Uh, These are on the uh, eastern periphery of the great East Asian uh, continent. Uh, Because because of its location, uh, since sort of proto-historic and and historic times, uh, Japan, unlike any other large and important country, uh, has uh, not been involved in large-scale migrations, uh, emigrations or immigrations, uh, has not been involved in more than the occasional uh, foreign war, war with foreign adversaries. Um, Until uh, uh, 1945, uh, there was no successful invasion of Japan. Uh, Until uh, 1894, Uh, There was no successful Japan invasion of any of its neighbors. So it is a country uh, that, through historical circumstances, uh, has uh, a degree of uh, uh, continuity in terms of culture, to a a degree in terms of uh, its uh, institutions, and a degree in terms of its society. Uh, that is characterized not by absolute homogeneity in any sense, but by an unusual, I think really unprecedented degree, uh, of uh, a population that shares a common language, common religious traditions, uh, similar racial stock. Uh, And this is even today, uh, perhaps in an exaggerated form, Uh, part of the identity of of Japan. What
0: period would be considered modern Japanese history? Well,
1: modern Japanese history uh, starts, can be dated pretty precisely to the middle of the 19th century. Uh, It's in uh, 1853 that uh, Japan has its first violent encounter with uh, Western imperialism in the form of uh, Admiral Perry. and in relatively short order, uh, that encounter provokes a revolt against the uh, long reigning uh, uh, warlord dynasty, the Tokugawa Shogun. And um, uh, within 15 years of arrival of Perry, there's a revolution uh, which overthrows uh, not just the dynasty but precedes Uh, very rapidly and very ruthlessly to uh, dismantle feudal uh, political, social, economic institutions, and uh, very consciously to embark on a program of um, modernization using the West as a model. The West was the modern society at the time, Uh, and one can say that by uh, the end of the 19th century, Four or five de- decades later, Japan had achieved its goal. In, in usual indexes, one uses for uh, measuring the moder- modernity. Japan, by around uh, 1900, certainly by World War I, uh, satisfies most of the criteria we we use for uh, what is a modern state.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Europe and the United States in the late 1800s became fascinated by Japanese art, by um, design traditions, and so on. Uh, you know, you go to a museum and you look at Whistler's work. You look at some mm-hmm. of the, the important artists from from that period. Um, and so often there are Japanese screens. There are women painted in mm-hmm. kimonos, and so on. What was it, do you think? That was was it just that it was such a uh, such a very different culture than most of us had seen represented before that that Europe and America became so charmed by this place.
1: Well I think it was it, I, the it, it's partly that, that that Japan had remained inaccessible yeah. for the most part for as long as it had, even when it had developed a high and very sophisticated culture that was part of the attraction. Mm-hmm. Beyond that I, I would say that, uh, in Japan, is outside Japan, there's a kind of natural curiosity uh, as to the various forms that culture takes. Visual culture is, is particularly subject to um, borrowing. To the, artists are very aware of conventions that are to be used, uh, what the possibilities are uh, with particular conventions, and we should also point out that even though during the, 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 the period that preceded the, the uh, confrontation with the West, uh, there was a window uh, onto Japan. Uh, the Dutch were maintained a trading station uh, for, from the early 1600s. Uh, Japanese artists and scientists, uh, through the Dutch, through a very narrow window, but nevertheless, uh, were introduced to. Uh, science, art, literature, as was developing in the West, so that the it wasn't entirely as if you had you know, Rip Van Winkle awaking two and a half centuries later mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> suddenly uh, seeing a whole new world around him, nor was it the case uh, that, people, that, that people outside Japan were entirely unaware
2: mm-hmm.
1: of uh, this very high, very sophisticated culture Mm-hmm. that have been developing over these centuries. Mm-hmm.
0: And could you briefly tell us about the, the political systems that have operated, you know, very broadly in uh, Japan, the, the long dynasties, and then when did uh, what we think of as the, the more modern system um, come into effect in Japan?
1: Well, Japan, I'd say, roughly went through um, two long periods uh, prior to to the 19th century. The first was a uh, aristocratic culture, almost entirely confined to what, the the city now known as Kyoto. At the time, uh, Heiankyo, uh, it was it, it developed a extraordinary uh, culture, of, uh, particularly in literature, uh, both narrative prose and and poetry, uh, art, various pictorial art forms. Um, in terms of the political institutions at the time, it, it started with uh, pretty direct imitation of uh, the Chinese dynastic system, the Tang dynasty, Tang system in particular, but then evolved into something similar to, but, but functioning uh, according to the, the needs of a country, which are very different from mm-hmm. China as a huge continental uh, culture. So there's an aristocratic culture uh, with a, an imperial family at the center uh, that uh, d- doesn't take a, a direct very direct role in politics, uh, really is really a figure who confers legitimacy on uh, other political elites. And that continues um, very peacefully uh, for about four or five hundred years until the middle of the 19th century when, uh, real power really devolves to a provincial warrior class, various clans that are at each other's throat. And what's, really in, what's very interesting is that even after uh, power, economic and certainly military power, uh, have, have descended to the provincial uh, warrior class, uh, when they finally do seize power in their own right, they're quite content to leave the emperor where he is. That is the person who confers a legitimacy on the real power they command, mm-hmm. and then so from uh, the end of the 12th century down to the middle of the 19th century, you have a series of of, of dynasties of, shog- of, of shoguns, of military families who uh, are the real rulers of Japan.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> Excuse me, I know that some of your current research relates to the internment of Japanese-Americans in uh, the World War II period here in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're looking into there?
1: Yeah, th- this, pro- this, this obviously relates more to America yes, right. <laughs> than it does to Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, one, of my sub- one of the te- areas I've been, been, been teaching in and uh, have, have research interests in uh, is the internment of Japanese Americans mm-hmm. um, and that the the background to that would be the uh, fairly late that is in the latter part of the 19th century uh, Japanese for the first time began to emigrate and they they emigrated both to the east south and to the west and when they went west the first large group went to Hawaii uh, brought there as contract laborers on um, uh, sh- sugar, and then later pineapple plantations. Mm-hmm. There was a, a second wave that went primarily to the West Coast of the United States, um, and by the time of, uh, by the time we reached 1940, uh, there are roughly a quarter million uh, people of, of Jap- Japanese uh, descent ancestry. Uh, living either in the West Coast or in the Hawaiian Islands. Um, those those who came as immigrants uh, were denied by, by by statute, by federal statute, uh, the right to naturalize. And so they were all aliens. Um, their, their 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 children, and sometimes grandchildren, even in nineteen forty, having been born in the United States, were 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 citizens. Uh, Nevertheless, given a kind of extraordinary uh, racial fear uh, that uh, developed, which which was accelerated by very particular uh, anti-immigrant interests along the West Coast, uh, sort of pushed forward a policy uh, of singling out uh, Japanese among other aliens in World War II. There were Italians, mm-hmm. <laughs> there were Germans, mm-hmm. there were others, in fact, who were much more active, actively involved in uh, subversive activities in the United States. But it was the Japanese, because of their racial otherness, because of the uh, difficulty in, the West, but America always had in the fact that Japan had become a world power. It's sort of like us in terms of technology, uh, but it's culturally different and it's racially different. Mm-hmm. And so Japan was threatening in a number of ways. And very unfortunately and very unjustly, it, were, it was the uh, Japanese residents uh, of the continental United States uh, who are then subject to mass internment. And this is the first sort of uh, large 20th century massive violation of uh, human, of, um, of civil rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of pre-Patriot Act <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. example of this. Now at the same time, as some of you may be aware, uh, the, the even slightly larger population of Japanese in Hawaii were exempt. And of course, this makes no sense at all, mm-hmm. given the fact that they were much closer to the war theater. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they comprised 40 percent of the population, while the Japanese Americans on the entire West Coast were never more than five percent. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, that's mm-hmm. a long story, and and one which needs to be mm-hmm. investigated because it's such a blot on the history of of this country.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you may not feel there's enough time to talk about it now, but one of the other things I know you're looking at is cinematic representations, Hollywood presentations of Japan and Japanese people during that era. Is there anything you can say about that?
1: Well, the there isn't a uniform view. Uh, in in whenever you find an, an anti an, you know, anti immigrant movement, uh, it's it there always are. It doesn't something that happens spontaneously. Mm-hmm. It's something that comes because uh, people, certain groups, have, have very concrete economic or political uh, mm-hmm. interests, which they exploit. They also play upon stereotypes, which are much more general within the society and the culture. Um, and the, you see something like that happening with respect to Japanese Americans. And then, of course, there's always an international context. And so as Japan in fact became uh, an aggressor uh, in Asia, uh, most notably uh, from 1937 on, waged a a brutal war of aggression, mainly in China at the time, Um, the characteristics of of Japanese abroad, Japanese who were part of the Japanese army, Tended to be read back into the uh, indi- into the uh, resident population of Japanese here again, not so unlike what happens after 9/11 mm-hmm. in terms of people of of Arab or Middle Eastern descent. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll continue this. I'm going to bring up a couple of other people to join us now. Uh, for those of you listening, we've been talking with Professor Stephen Vlastos. And uh, I'll be bringing up to the stage now Levy McLaughlin and Melissa Marie Curley to join us. And uh, as they get settled, I'll just explain that uh, Melissa Marie Curley is an Assistant Professor of Japanese Religions in the Department of Religious Studies here at the University of Iowa. And Levy McLaughlin is an anthropologist and a postdoctoral research associate in University of Iowa International Programs for this year. So thank Thanks, both of you, for uh, joining us. And um, you're both intimately familiar with Japan, and you've heard Stephen's comments so far, and he's gonna stay with us and, of course, uh, add thoughts to whatever you might all have to say. But I'll start with you, Melissa. And I would like you to tell us a little bit about religion in Japan. Obviously, again, an overwhelmingly broad topic, but many people will have heard of the Shinto uh, tradition. Many people uh, may be aware that there is a long history of Buddhist tradition in uh, Japan. but but start us
3: off, please. Okay, well, I think the first thing that comes to mind in thinking about uh, Buddhism and Shinto that is so important for understanding Japanese religions, which most people don't know, uh, is that Shinto, although it's thought of as the the ancient indigenous tradition, is actually sort of a new invention. Before that modern period that, that Stephen is talking about, we don't really see uh, Shinto and Buddhism as separate entities in Japan. They're combined into a single uh, a single kind of system. There's a really beautiful image for capturing that, which is, uh, I think, very relatable. If you imagine yourself on a sunny day, seeing a, a beam of sunlight coming through the window, and if you're not a very good housekeeper, uh, then, <laughs> then in the beam of sunlight, there will be all these uh, motes of dust. Uh, and. Uh, the image that people use for talking about Shinto and Buddhism, how they relate to each other before the modern period, is that uh, Shinto, the powers of Shinto, or the deities in Shinto, come from the earth of Japan, like those motes of dust. And Buddhism comes from the outside, like the, the radiance of the sun. So without the sun you can't see the dust, but also without the dust you can't see the sun. They have that kind of very intimate relationship. And then modernity comes, and you know the, the rulers of Japan realize modern nations uh, have religions. And so we need something that's recognizable as religion. And we're going to take from this system one thing, and we're going to call it Shinto, another thing we're going to call it Buddhism. And that's how you get this idea that there are these two discrete traditions.
0: Yeah. So, so what would uh, the practice of these religions
3: be like in Japan for the average family? Oh, gosh. Uh, today or, Mm -hmm. well, I mean one of the things, and maybe Levy will agree with me, that can be tough about studying religion in Japan is that a lot of Japanese people will agree that there is no uh, more religion in Japan (laughs) sometimes, the Japanese people are not very religious anymore. It's one of the great
4: paradoxes of the subject. (laughs) Absolutely.
3: So if I think of something that kind of captures my interest in terms of, um, Uh, what uh, popular religious life is like. I think of something that people who have been to Japan will probably have seen, because you see them everywhere, these rows and rows of statues of a a bodhisattva figure, a kind of saint figure called Jizo, who looks like he's very small and cute, looks sort of like a baby. Uh, and there will just be sort of repeated rows, row after row, of this, this one figure. And you can tell there's something institutional there, right? Some institution is producing all of these statues and selling them and installing them. But uh, each statue uh, will be dressed up in a little bib, with a little a little miniature bonnet, and maybe some toys have been given to it. And there you can see, oh, some individual has taken an interest in this one particular statue, whether because they're associating it with the spirit of someone that they know, or they're associating it with the spirit of someone that they don't know. They're kind of taking care of that uh, image in order to take care of the spirit in this very improvisatory way. So that's where I think Japanese religion is really alive, in that combination of institutional practice and individual practice.
2: What do
4: you think? Actually, to pick up on that point, this is one of the great, as I mentioned, the great paradoxes. Two-thirds of people in Japan will self-identify as having no religious faith. Um, at the same time, if you ask them, what do you do at New Year's, something like 70 percent of Japan will visit a shrine to, uh, to go to pray to specific deities to usher in fortune for the coming year. Eighty percent of people in Japan will visit the graves of their ancestors that the people have passed on in their own families. Uh, the majority of households have uh, a Buddhist altar, a Shinto shrine, or both, installed. And these are the same people who will self-identify, saying, we're not religious. The problem comes with, with what we were speaking about earlier, um, the era of modernity and the isms that are, that are placed upon long-standing traditions that never self-identified as isms. Um, and within that also is the rise of a lot of what are called new religious movements which have uh, gained a reputation, for better or worse, as being socially marginal. And so what transpired, especially over the the latter half of the 20th century, is a strong self-identification as as religious is associated with that type of um, aggressive or um, proactive religious faith, which is equated with um, being uh, uh, somehow outside of the mainstream. And these are things that have contributed to this uh, really conflicted relationship of religion in contemporary Japan.
0: Yeah. Well, so tell us more about this group. Are you speaking about the Soka Gakkai?
4: Well, the group that I study the most is a group called Soka Gakkai. It's mm-hmm. literally the Value Creation Study Association, which, you know, again, paradoxically, didn't even begin as a religion at all. It started as a group of people interested in educational reform, who turned to a, a type of medieval Buddhism. And through this they, they uh, fused two legacies, one being this, this tremendous tradition of, of Buddhist transcendence that was available in Japan with the Euro-American influences that were flooding in at the late 19th, early 20th, early 20th centuries. Um, and this was a tremendously successful combination today, Sokagakkai, they claim 8.27 million households in the country. Uh, they're also all over the world under the uh, the umbrella of SGI or Sokagakkai International, um, actually Japan's most successful religious export, uh, just based on numbers of converts alone. Um, and uh, But they're widely... Uh, what they actually do, what ordinary members actually end up doing in their ordinary lives, not widely known, because they're have been stigmatized for their two major things. One is the um, hardcore uh, proselytizing, which is viewed as being somewhat um, against the norm in Japan, and involvement with in electoral politics, which uh, uh, the 1947 constitution guarantees a strict division of religion and state, uh, something that people view sohagagai as having contravened.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when you say that they're interested in politics or pushing a political agenda or whatever, would, from, from the West's point of view, would we consider these people progressive in their politics or...?
4: Very difficult to pigeonhole. Um, beginning uh, the, the, Their political party, the affili- now uh, independent officially from Soka Gakkai, is called Komeito or the Clean Government Party. It's actually new Komeito as of the late 1990s. Um, began as this uh, initiative to clean up politics and, and still maintains what we would call socially progressive um, uh, platforms, particularly in the last year regarding um, initiatives to uh, reform or rebuild Japan following the, the, the disaster. But for 10 years, between 1999 and 2009, they were affiliated with the Liberal Democratic Party, which is right-wing, so a little difficult to say where they stand in that yeah. regard.
0: What, do you have anything to add to to that discussion of the sort of religious practice and culture in Japan, Stephen?
1: Well, there's the the the, the, the fact that that, that most, both of you have spoken to is that um, the, the categories themselves, the one we're familiar with, um, don't do a very good job when you get to Japan. Um, that. <laughs> the, the, Coming out of a, a, a monotheistic mm-hmm. you know, culture, whether it's started Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, we, we really don't don't we really, the, the terms that exist in English when tra- transferred into Japan don't convey what the experience is, either in terms of of the expected performance or more importantly the spiritual aspect. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Melissa, tell us something about, I I know that um, your description on your website talks about an interest you have in religion and exile, religion and the body. Um,
3: Can you talk a little bit about either of those? Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things that really captures my attention in Levy's work is this idea that the groups he's looking at Uh, are overlooked by scholars in part because they're um, identified as socially marginal. And what I think is fascinating about that is that the most, uh, to my mind, because they're the kinds uh, kinds of Buddhism that I study, the most beautiful, uh, powerful forms of Japanese Buddhism emerge similarly from conditions of social marginality from people who are socially marginal during a time of great social upheaval. And I think although uh, sometimes there's a tendency to think of uh, Japan as a kind of conformist culture, a culture that's very interested in uh, uniformity, if we look at it historically, religious movements, at least, uh, have come out of a really radical embrace of separateness and difference and multiplicity. That's a real source of religious power, and I think that's still true today. You can really see the movements that I'm looking at now, who have become very uh, conservative in some ways as they've become more socially acceptable, uh, almost uh, trying trying to reclaim a marginal position, with the sense that only you know only the socially marginal have the moral authority to criticize the state. So even though we're actually very rich and powerful. We, we have to look at the socially marginal and try to be more like them. That's a dynamic that I find really amazing and, and very moving.
1: Yeah. I, I, I suppose another thing that, that is, is kind of worth pointing out in re- respect to religion and its history in Japan is the really remarkable, in fact, I'd say uh, unprecedented uh, degree of religious tolerance. I mean, there's no other, as, at least as far as I know, other large developed society. Where there uh, ha- there is a world religion which then coexists with um, a, a a native animistic tradition, and both the 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 world religion that is Buddhism, and um, the the and, and Shinto, in its various forms, not 100 percent, but compared to anywhere else. They they manage to get along together. They manage to coexist, and there is a extraordinary degree of of uh, syncretism that that will flow in and out, and sometimes more. And it is one aspect of Japan I think that is under underappreciated.
0: Mm-hmm. What about Christianity? You know, the presence uh-huh. of Judaism, Mormonism, some some of these okay. various. Uh, branches of religion that we know here—is have they moved into Japan? Is there a presence in Japan of some of these?
4: There are about one million Christians in Japan. This is le- less than 1% of the population, really? and not for lack of trying. Yeah. Uh, you name the denomination, they've banged their head against that wall for, for many years. There are two major reasons that you could account for. There are many, two major ones you could mention. One is there is a, a history of persecution of Christianity. Was, there was something called the Christian century when Portuguese uh, missionaries arrived in the middle of the 1500s and were ultimately driven out and uh, uh, martyred uh, by and, and ushering in a period of uh, closed country, essentially, one of the major reasons why Japan was cut off for two and a half or so centuries from the rest of the world, uh, with a few minor exceptions. The other is that it, with the reintroduction of Christianity from the 8th, 19th century onwards, um, by and large, Christian groups didn't do a very good job of nativizing of making their practices relevant to the everyday lives of ordinary people in Japan. And so the legacy of that is that Christianity retains this image as being foreign, being exotic, being associated with uh, going overseas, with learning a foreign language, with doing something that is not Japanese, in other words. And so it hasn't really been able to shake that image. And uh, many, many missionaries have tried.
3: (laughs) I think what uh, Levi's saying really captures uh, the reason for the incredible difference between the success of uh, Christianity in Korea mm-hmm. and its pretty dramatic lack of success in Japan, this idea that, you know, in Korea, Christianity uh, is able mm-hmm. to position itself as something for the people, uh, and in Japan that just doesn't happen. has not happened.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the same time, it's worth pointing out that, that uh, cr- uh, Japanese Christians have a... Vastly disproportionate influence uh, in society, primarily through education, art, yes. um, literature. Uh, it 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 is it hasn't it, it even though that numerically it's really quite marginal, it's had an it's an important part of the overall mix of of Japanese culture today.
0: Mm-hmm. in in these last many decades with so many students traveling internationally, studying in many, many foreign nations, and later on we're going to have a guest with us here who spent almost two years with us uh, from Japan, Yume Hideka. Um, Has has this, in the last 20, 30 years, um, caused some changes in Japan as well? Are there lots of exchange students, for example, that come in to study in high schools and college in Japan? And does Japan send many students to the U.S.? Or perhaps to perhaps Germany. Stephen
4: or... would have a greater perspective on this on this topic. More well, I, I'm thinking myself. I, I first went to Japan in 1993 as an exchange student. Oh yeah, and yeah. Um, it was a transformative experience. Basically, it hooked me for life. That's almost yeah. 20 years ago now. Yeah. Um, I've seen the country transform immensely, and also the experience of studying abroad. It. it was an enormous even then. It was you know early 90s. It was an enormous uh, leap to go spend a year. Um, There were lots of students doing it was quite established by that point. Now the back and forth is almost routine. There are people who commute from the west coast of the United States to Japan um, Mm -hmm. weekly. This is the notions of distance both culturally and geographically have transformed as a result of really conscientious efforts made at the state level and also on individual levels to, to, to strengthen ties between the two places I would say.
0: Well, and with instant and um, uh, sort of constant communication worldwide through every sort of gadget you can imagine, and, and the visibility of one culture and another culture through news programs, through entertainment programs, and so on, have you witnessed? Do you think during your lifetimes um, changes in in uh, I'll ask you, Stephen, in, in the um, the way uh, you know a Japanese individual might um, engage with an outside the outside world than perhaps their parents would have just openness?
1: Well, so I, since I'm clearly the oldest one here <laughs> on the stage and the one who who's, who went to Japan at, a, at an earlier time, uh, I've noticed just a um, uh, complete change in terms, not complete change, but enormous change um, in terms of uh, how young people in Japan Uh, See themselves in relationship to uh, non-Japanese and uh, people from the West, in particular. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used it. The I I think that uh, the great majority of Japanese today um, see themselves as world citizens, Mm -hmm. not very differently in the way that that most Americans or or Brits or or um, uh, Spaniards or Russians see themselves as world citizens. Um, that and that was that was really not true. I mean, it was partly the legacy of the war, mm-hmm. and the war of the, of the occupation when re- travel by Japanese was severely restricted. Um, partly the legacy of a of a system of of, of a language pedagogy, second language acquisition that was. Uh, not the very best, Mm -hmm. to say the least. Uh, But I think that, uh, I I sense a real change today. Is is that your experience as well? and I
3: mean, one thing that's really delightful in the classroom is that because those flows are going in both directions, very often in Japanese religions classes, I find my students, have knowledge of very arcane pieces of Japanese uh, religious thought and practice coming from really surprising places. You know? So I'll try to introduce, I'll think I'm gonna tell them something they've never heard of. I'm gonna tell them about this, uh, this, this kind of mythical uh, goblin badger creature called the tanuki, and they're, I'm gonna just knock their socks off. And then I go in and I, I just say the word tanuki and all the students are, oh, of course. uh, A Nintendo game? We know this for sure. We know all about this. And I I was talking to a a friend who teaches uh, about uh, Thai Buddhism in Vermont, and he said, you know, I teach about Thailand and Vermont, and you teach about Japan and Iowa, and isn't it tough to teach students about a, a culture they know nothing about? You know, my students don't know anything about Thailand. And I said, I, my students know so much about Japan before I before I ever get to them. Yeah. It's a culture they're so comfortable with, and that makes it so yeah. fun. Yeah, and these are not just students of Japanese origin.
0: These Absolutely are, yeah, not. No. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, well, I know you're teaching a class now on youth culture in Japan, aren't you, Levy? Yes, Lavey? that's right. But what kinds of topics are you are discussing in that class?
4: Well, I mean, most of the students arrive having been immersed in anime, manga. This is, I think. The majority of people under the age of 25 or so, this is their their interface with with Japan, and so things like Tanuki or, you know, odd uh, sort of vocabulary of, of uh, mythology and other things related to Japanese culture, comes through that way. I'm actually, in a way, weaning them uh, using that as a Trojan horse. I have to admit, if my students are here, but to, to as an introduction to uh, contemporary issues, and I'm delighted by uh, the fact that they're they're quite happy to. Contextualize the stuff that they've taken up so far, and put it in into terms of uh, real people living the lives of ordinary folks mm-hmm. you know, who are living in a place that, um, and on the surface appears to be uh, peaceful and maybe monolithic, is actually rife with conflict. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and just thinking in terms of you know pop culture, um, for years and years and years, we all were seeing videos of Michael Jackson, for example, going to Japan, or Madonna, or somebody who was sort of a huge star in the West, loved at least as much in Japan as um, as you know we might imagine somebody would get stormed in New York City or in Houston or something. But um, I mean, the world has made everybody closer on the pop culture level. Anybody who's interested. Um, uh, what are some of the differences? We've, we've talked a little bit about how, in many ways, we're all sort of part of this one, one world, this sort of big global experience, but what are the ways in which you think youth in Japan are, are still perhaps, you, you would think that they're, they're different just in their mindset from kids growing up in the States, for example, is there anything that you would think of?
4: I could put into, just one general kind of characteristic, a lot yeah. of the stuff that we take for granted as being Western, say, yeah. clothing, Um, uh, was brought in at a much later period to Japan. And so as a result of that, it had a whole different career. The same goes with music. And so on the surface, people may appear to wear similar looking things, or they may listen to similar sounding music, but it has behind it a whole different uh, series of connections. And it is also, people in Japan are able to draw on a whole other uh, vocabulary of experiences and images and sounds. That uh, we would find unfamiliar. These things conflate, they fuse in really intriguing ways, and you're finding this with the flow out of Japan into into the West. I mean, no, notably things like the manga and the anime, yeah. strikingly different, strikingly alluring, to people overseas as a result yeah. of these kinds of conf, uh, combinations.
0: Yeah. Well, to talk just a little bit more about your work, uh, your field work in anthropology. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the the practitioners of Soka Gakkai. You said they're very. They, they're kind of kind of very quiet about what they do in the sense of um, you're you're sort of uh, maybe they're well you'll have to tell me what it is there but but I think you said that sometimes it's hard to see exactly what they're doing because they are uh, sort of I don't know on the margins and they and they uh, well, uh, maybe keep the, themselves separate.
4: Step back for just one moment. The the um, the Sokugaka has long been the elephant in the room when it comes to the study of religion in Japan because it's so big and so controversial. Um, and uh, though it's ubiquitous, no one really knew about I, what ordinary members, what ordinary practitioners were doing. And so uh, from the year 2000 or so up, to, up till now, I've been spending uh, years at a time at first, and then subsequently months, and then weeks at a time, living with members of Soka Gakkai in Tokyo and other parts of Japan, uh, taking part in tra- uh, doctrinal training exercises, playing violin in their, uh, one of their five symphony orchestras that's in mm-hmm. Tokyo. Uh, all, and all you know, as a non-member participant, and people were extraordinarily open and generous in allowing me to take part, extremely sincere in the desire to have uh, a grossly misunderstood organization, uh, made human, in a sense. And um, the, So this was my, my approach. And one big reason why uh, the group has been maligned is uh, the legacy of another organization called Om Shinrikyo. In 1995, March 20th, um, ten members of Om boarded Tokyo subways and opened sarin gas and uh, uh, nerve toxin, killing 12 people, injuring thousands, and then plunging the reputation of religions into the sewer. For you know, yeah. since then, yeah. and so what the net effect has been essentially is a cognitive link between new religious movements and violence, and um, fear, and so all the groups i among them have been pushing back against this sort of prevailing image of religion. Especially new religions as being somehow dangerous.
0: Yeah, I see, I see. And so you'll you'll continue to work with these people over
4: For some sure. time? As yeah. long as they'll have listened yeah. to me and let me let me take part.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Melissa, before we break this segment, can you tell me what the notion of pure land is? Oh,
3: (laughs) sure. So um, in the medieval period, during this time of great upheaval, as people were trying to think about uh, better possibilities, They drew on this image of a kind of pocket universe in the West where everything is made of gold and jewels and your lunch is served every day, it's so delicious, you don't even need to eat it, just smelling it is enough. (laughs) Everything's um, sort of covered in rainbows. Uh, they, They drew on that image and tried to think hard about how they could turn this world into that kind of beautiful place a place of happiness, and uh, after the war, in a kind of similar situation of upheaval, people drew on that image again and tried to think about, okay, now that we're we're sort of devastated, how are we going to turn this world that we live in, after the war they said, not so much a happy place, but a place of equality and freedom and justice for everybody. Uh, so. The, it's, that, it's that reinvention of the happy place mm-hmm. as a place of uh, equality that really uh, is what's interesting to me in my research. And of course, uh, because this is also a time of upheaval, not only in Japan, but in the world, I'm really interested in how people are gonna draw on that image of a, a, a beautiful land again and think about, okay, what, what would it be like if this world was, was beautiful again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, either
0: of you guys have anything to, to say in response to this notion of pure pure land?
4: Sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I, I want to say thanks to you guys. I Le- love you. I'd like to keep you here. But thank you, Stephen Vlastos and Melissa and Marie Curley for joining us to talk about these things. I appreciate it very much. Thanks.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for inviting us.
0: You bet. Thank you. And so uh, we will invite our next guests on stage here. Thanks. Um, Barry Thomas and Ann Campbell will be joining us in just a moment. This is World Canvas, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. And we invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or FM. Links to the broadcast can be found at international programs website, international.uiowa.edu. And the full World Canvas series may be seen on UITV and is available a downloadable podcast on iTunes. I'd like to invite you to the next program in this uh, series, which will be held here in this room, the Senate Chamber, on April 13th, and the topic that night will be global science fiction. So I think that'll be fun, and that's on Friday, April 13th at 5 o'clock, so join us if you can. So with me now are uh, two new guests. Um, we're going to talk about Japan's post-war economic boom and its more recent economic troubles, and we're going to look at uh, what we can gather from this uh, massive 2011 earthquake, tsunami, nuclear uh, near disaster um, and um Staying with us is Levy McLaughlin, whom you've already met. Ann Campbell is just next to him. Anne is an Associate Professor of Management Sciences and Martha and Dennis Hesse, Research Fellow in the Tippie College of Business. Thanks for coming, Ann. And uh, just next to me is Barry Thomas. Thank you for being here. Barry is an Associate Professor of Management Sciences and Faculty Director of the University of Iowa's MBA Strategic Innovation Career Academy, also the Leonard A. Hadley Research Fellow in the Tippie College of Business. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Barry. After World War II, uh, Japan sort of—I I don't know—reimagined it itself. Went underwent. Uh, uh, it came came to a great economic boom. I mean, all kinds of successes. We're all aware of how many decades now Japanese automobiles and electronics and so on have been at the top of every list. And one hears about something um, loosely called the Japanese corporate model or business models in Japan that may, at least in the past, have been quite different from other models we were more used to. So I wanted to have you talk to us about that and perhaps use Toyota as an example.
5: Sure. Uh, well, I think you know one way to look uh, specifically uh, at that, initial post-war period is, is Japan had lower labor costs uh, than other places in the world and, and thus could be thought of as, as the China of its time. But uh, clearly it transformed from there uh, into more value-added type of uh, manufacturing in particular. And and certainly as you look at, at the, the current period or even the last 25 years, uh, you know, it would be hard to say that there's one Japanese business model, just like any other dynamic uh, economy on Earth. Uh, th- there are many of those, and, and you have companies now like Sony and, and Nintendo who are probably wishing they were more like Apple. Yeah. But uh, certainly there has been uh, a success in a model that, that's been exported around the world, and, and that is most closely linked with Toyota. And uh, I think we originally would call that the, the Toyota production system, Although more recently we've seen that uh, the system and the thinking uh, has been applied well outside of manufacturing, and I would say right now the, the forefront of that is, is in healthcare. And, and the, I think the way then we would describe it now is as uh, lean thinking. And so I would roughly characterize lean thinking as uh, continuous improvement that eliminates waste. And our definition of waste is anything that the customer doesn't value, anything that the customer uh, isn't willing to pay for. And particularly in the US, uh, and this was most true in, in the 80s and even into the 90s, what we really saw of this model were the kinds of tools that, that Toyota in particular was applying uh, in its factories. So it, uh, we were importing ideas such as just-in-time production. That is that you deliver inventory to the production line at the exact moment that it's needed. Or, for instance, uh, the, the idea uh, that it's roughly called 5S uh, in the Toyota culture, which is a, really a, a system and a way of thinking about workplace organization. But uh, the Toyota model really goes much deeper than, than this set of tools. In fact, a tool like 5S, uh, really has its roots more in Frederick Taylor in the 1880s in the steel industry in the United States. So uh, Toyota certainly uh, brought that into their toolkit, but, but it wasn't the thing that, that I think made them successful. I think what the, the, the division that happens between the way that we were operating sort of a Western production philosophy versus what was happening in Japan uh, really comes back to that, that question of value. And if you go back to Frederick Taylor uh, and then Henry Ford, who really was probably the best known embodiment of this, the real focus was on the the production assets. It was on the machines, and it was on making those machines uh, as uh, efficient and as productive as possible. Well, as Toyota began to uh, rebuild uh, its, its manufacturing after World War II, Uh, there were numerous problems, in particular, with trying to replicate the Ford model. The Ford model relied heavily on uh, capital-intensive equipment, and and Toyota simply didn't have the capital to purchase that equipment. And and frankly, their market wasn't big enough at the time. Uh, They they were going to have to produce for a Japanese market uh, that, unlike Ford, that certainly at that point would be producing millions of vehicles, Toyota was looking at producing thousands of vehicles. So they they really had to rethink the model in order to be successful. And and what they did was really focused on this customer value. And that fundamentally changes the way you look at structuring your production. And in fact, as I noted earlier, it, it can fundamentally change the way you look at even running a healthcare system mm-hmm. or, or a financial services company as well. yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, not knowing this in any depth at all, one of the things I had imagined that, that really sort of represented this Japanese model was that sort of respect for one's workers and being able to stop the production line if you saw something going wrong. This was the sort of top-line thing that had lived in my head. Is that part of this?
5: Oh, absolutely. And and, I, and this comes, again, uh, back to that, that question of looking at the, the, the efficiency of the productive asset mm-hmm. versus uh, driving customer value. Mm-hmm. And... And certainly uh, a distinction, if you would look at you know, Henry Ford's uh, production line, uh, certainly in the, the pre-war period and even the, the post-war period, versus what Japan was doing, is that um, Henry Ford was, was breaking down the jobs, a, a division of labor, which of course happens at Toyota. But uh, each person would be assigned to a job, and they would do that job all day, every day, until somebody left and maybe they got the opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to move on. And there would be not only then those production workers doing the specific assembly task but you would have other workers who were doing uh, you know sort of housekeeping tasks and then you would have a very separated engineering organization and it's in that engineering organization that uh, improvement would come from. And this this actually goes back to, to Frederick Taylor in the the 1880s and, and up to uh, the early 1900s where he would have uh, in his principles of scientific management he says very clearly that that we must separate the tasks of uh, of, of managing the production from that of, of actually doing the production. Uh, well there were a number of reasons that, that this changed. One some of this was was governmental that that period was difficult uh, in Japan obviously and uh, there became that that system uh, the sort of contract between the company and, and labor that, that was, was essentially this uh, employment for life. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as the father of the Toyota production system, Taiichi Ono, was looking at this, he realized, well, that, that created a fundamental difference with Henry Ford, who was willing to simply replace the worker if that re- mm-hmm. worker wasn't productive enough. Taiichi Ono had to figure out, how can I actually make this worker as productive as possible, because I'm in a contract with them for, yeah. uh, for life. And, and what that meant was that you needed to involve Uh, get the most out of that worker and and that meant not only their work but their mind Mm -hmm. and so he came to view it that that the worker is actually closest to the production Mm -hmm. and thus the worker might actually know best how to improve that production system and what's fascinating is that some of these similar ideas were uh, part of a US government program during World War II called training within industry where they had exactly this concept because Clearly, there was crisis, and at that point, they had to figure out how to produce as much as possible, as fast as possible, and the program had within it um, guidelines for including workers in the improvement. Hmm. We completely lost that in the U.S. at the end of World War II. Partially, there, you know, we had a, a workforce returning who wasn't yeah. part of this training within industry. The government stopped the program thinking it mm-hmm. wasn't necessary, and, and there certainly was no crisis because... Uh, most of the rest of the productive capacity in the world was devastated, and and so we didn't have that need here. And uh, as I was uh, rereading some things in preparation for this show, uh, there's a quote uh, that that John Shook gives in in the book on training within industry, and John Shook was the first American to work for Toyota, where he he talks about discovering this training within industry manual while he was at Toyota City in Japan (laughs) and realizing that you know, this was this was actually a, yeah. a U.S. government program, so it's very interesting.
0: Wow! And so, in in the last what twenty years or so, have has has this model become part of sort of most uh, you know modern production lines? Would you say in in industrialized countries?
5: Yeah, I would say most advanced uh, manufacturing companies, uh, certainly in the U.S. and and uh, Europe, will will now have adopted mm-hmm. these. Mm-hmm. I mean, interestingly though. You know, GM, for instance, had a joint venture with Toyota in 1984 in a, a former GM plant in Fremont, California that was called Numi. And Numi has just just closed a couple of years ago. But uh, this was sort of Toyota entered into the joint venture because they were fearing tariff. and uh, I think that the GM needed help with, with making small cars that, that actually made money. Mm-hmm. So they thought this would be a good marriage. And in fact, what they ended up doing the, the Fremont plant had been closed for about a year. They, they took workers, UAW workers from that plant, flew them over to Japan, and uh, trained them on the, the Toyota production lines with, hmm. with Toyota workers, and they came back. And within uh, 18 months to two years, this was one of the certainly one of the most efficient plants uh, in, in GM, and, and probably rivaled some of the, the, the Toyota plants as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the problem was that the success didn't export itself to the rest of GM until much more recently, mm-hmm. and and it really comes down to to having that that crisis that forces you to change because uh, there is that change management question yeah. and uh, you know many people within GM didn't see the need to change mm-hmm. leadership wasn't uh, you know aligning the organization and incentivizing in a way that would have driven change mm-hmm. and and it just simply didn't happen mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. certainly uh, that's changed uh, yeah. particularly. Uh, as we know, you know GM and Chrysler themselves were right. were bankrupt. So uh, th- this has definitely become uh, very common.
0: So interesting, thank you so much. That's sure. a very time. Oh, you bet. And, and Anne, uh, we're going to switch gears just a little bit here. And I, I mentioned earlier that you're a specialist in logistics. And you, you have done a lot of research and a lot of work on the logistics of setting up disaster relief. And although you're not a specialist in the Japanese uh, disaster relief of the last year or so, can you tell us what it takes to sort of energize an international community or even a more regional area uh, to assist with disaster relief?
6: Sure, I was thinking about it quite a bit today uh, in preparation for the show, and it really is kind of hard to give an exact formula, obviously, because every disaster is quite a bit different, but there do tend to be a similar chain of events that tend to happen. Um, usually once a national or regional disaster happens, um, the government officials uh, you know, try to assess uh, what things they can do themselves um, with the supplies they have, the military they have, the Red Cross, you know, that they have in their own country. And then once they assess what they they don't have, they put out a call for um, other governments to donate or uh, NGOs uh, to to donate as well. They may be very, very specific that they want certain kind of supplies or very broad that we need sort of everything. Uh, And then usually the different groups start mobilizing into action. And almost every disaster you look at, that mobilization is challenging. Um, There's a lot of logistical issues. Uh, Like you said, has really been a lot of my study Uh, because if you think about often roads are destroyed and flooding and can really make the transportation hard. Also communication is very hard. You know, we all rely on cell phones to communicate everything. And so if you think about managing a huge logistics effort and you have no way to communicate, um, that is really challenging. And also coordination if you have you know, 400 different NGOs bringing food and water and, and trying to coordinate that so that everybody gets some tends to be a, a very big challenge. So so those mm-hmm. tend to be some of the, the issues that come up.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you give us, could you kind of walk us through uh, one of the disaster relief episodes that you're really familiar with, to sort of... Uh... You know, give us an example.
6: Well, I think one that is a really big contrast and comparison with Japan that we're all pretty familiar with is what happened with Haiti a few years ago, because on some levels it seems really similar, and that we've got an earthquake, we've got an island, but pretty much the similarity is sort of in there, Um, in that Haiti was a very poor country, or is a very poor country, I should say, was not prepared. Um, They don't have a lot of infrastructure in terms of Uh, Governments, military, supplies, they were really not ready for something like that to happen. Uh, So when the government assessed what they needed, they kind of needed everything. Uh, So that's why you had many, many NGOs and governments uh, mobilizing uh, to go in there. But then we had almost an infinite number of logistical challenges with the fact that, you know, the main airport wasn't working for a while, so there was no way to get, you know, to an island uh, flying. And then we had problems with the ports. Uh, They weren't operational for a while, so then when we were ready to go, we had tons of things to ship over from Miami and figuring out the priorities of what to ship when and and then getting things served to different people so that we got a balance across the whole country. was sort of a logistical nightmare in some way Mm -hmm. because you had so many different NGOs trying to help out and and a lot of inefficiency in, in organizing that. So you had the UN involved trying to coordinate it and just a very challenging situation from a logistical side. Where Japan is really different. Um, From one side, they're, like you mentioned earlier, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, And they were also almost hyper-prepared for an earthquake. They knew earthquake was a very distinct possibility given their location and their history of seismic events. So they had you know stockpiles of certain supplies ready to go. They had people prepared with procedures on what they would do, and just a very different situation. They had a Red Cross that had two million volunteers, a new had a sort of a plan. So once things ha- happened and they assessed what they needed, what they needed was very minimal compared to an ha- a Haiti situation. So actually, what they asked for was very small number of things and very specific things, unlike Haiti. For example, they asked for search and rescue experts. Uh, they asked for medical people, and they asked um, for some help with dealing with the nuclear, uh, the nuclear reactor assessment. They they didn't really want big NGOs coming in. They really felt like they weren't going to manage it themselves. So that really was a big difference uh, in terms of the amount of aid needed because they had so much ready, and then the logistics become a little bit different if everything is sort of government run, the amount of coordination is a little bit better because you don't have so many NGOs trying to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. There were still some logistical challenges because still you know, a couple thousand roads were destroyed by the earthquake, and you had the evacuation um, from the nuclear reactor, but it seems like in general you could say things went smoother um, because of what their situation was. Obviously not perfect, um, but but definitely a lot smoother from the logistics side.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the UN um, sort of was trying to help coordinate things with Haiti, for example. Um, is it usually the UN that would step in in some sort of international effort like that where the country really has no political uh, um, preparedness?
6: That has become, in my understanding, uh, one of the missions of the UN uh, Coordination of humanitarian or Council for Humanitarian Affairs because of the disasters. We've seen so many in the last 15 years, Um, particularly in uh, different countries. We've seen coordination be such a problem that that's something they've stepped up to be willing to do uh, in countries where it is needed. So I don't think they've had much involvement to that level in Japan because the government had so much coordination and really wanted to take charge of it. So I don't think they Mm -hmm. come in unless they're really asked Mm -hmm. to, but I think a a lot of organizations have seen coordination really is such a big challenge because you want to get things delivered as fast as possible and working out a really good plan is, is challenging to do really quickly. So that's why you've seen FEMA care a lot more about it in the United States, and, and then the UN be involved in an international scene, trying to have someone who's sort of involved in the coordination. But my impression is in Japan, the government of Japan did most of the coordination, mm-hmm. but there wasn't as much involving external parties. It was more having their local Red Cross, and you know, do a lot of the first response, and a lot of other things being done by the military, and everybody kind of having their <laughs> own jobs
0: hmm Well, Levy, uh, this is a good place for me to turn to you because I know that you've been doing a lot of uh, work on the this past year, what, what the experience has been for individual people, for communities, um, right. certainly the Fukushima uh, problems. Uh, take yeah. us through what some of you have been, th- what you've been thinking. I'll start with that just
4: to add an, an angle on the specific situation. Um, there, there was ext- extensive coordination, but... Uh, February 27th, the report was, was issued in Japanese by the, the, it's called the um, Rebuild Japan Initiative Foundation. Uh, the English language version is, that, is forthcoming. The, it's, a, it's an independent organization headed up by the former editor-in-chief of one of the major newspapers called the Asahi Shimbun, and they interviewed 300 people, including the then Prime Minister Kan Naoto, who was um, at the front lines of, of the Fukushima disaster. And Two things are clear. Uh, one is that this is the worst nuclear disaster in history, and the second is that this is not a natural disaster. And uh, the scariest part of the report that came out was that how close Japan was to annihilation, essentially. Uh, TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, was on the brink of pulling out completely after the first uh, three of the six uh, Fukushima Daiichi plants melted down. They lied about the, how bad it was, and uh, they were actually, it was, took the, pri- the Prime Minister arriving, bungling some things, uh, micromanaging and possibly confusing the situation. So it was a mixed, sort of a mixed uh, bag of things there. But essentially, he ordered them back in. And so the, the storied Fukushima 50, we've come to hear about the 50 TEPCO workers who stayed on, yeah. entered the irradiated plant to cool down. The nuclear rods had been exposed were uh, basically there uh, uh, despite not because of TEPCO's orders. Um, Had the worst-case scenario played out, there would have been a 250-kilometer radius uh, of uninhabitable irradiated space, which would have included Tokyo. That is to say, 30 million people would have had to have evacuated. So that's how close Japan came to essentially being wiped out, um, politically, at least for You know, the the projected scenarios are absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. So, given that, things have worked out, I suppose, to a fairly um, manageable level, but something like 150,000 plus people remain displaced. Uh, There's an area of 20 kilometers or so around the plant where people will never be able to return to their homes. Um, The stigma of Fukushima, both in terms of business and socially, uh, will, will stick with people possibly for generations. Um, and this was a result of a collusion between uh, industry and government that goes back to the immediate post-war era up to the present. So to speak a little bit about uh, industry, Barry, you were mentioning the sort of the success story of Toyota, a lot of that also becomes because of the, um, the back and forth between uh, very elite bureaucrats and technocrats in the government with uh, uh, corresponding with and sharing power with. Um, people in industry. This has had some salutary effects, obviously. Uh, Japan ballooned into the second largest economy, uh, which isn't bad for a place that has no natural resources, Uh, but the the cost of that is uh, depending, 30 percent of the power coming from nuclear. And the nuclear industry, uh, the Ministry of of, um, Economy, Trade and Industry simultaneously having the responsibility to regulate and promote nuclear power. So these, these, the conflict in that led to uh, uh, insufficient standards of safety. Mm-hmm. And a, what's, what's come out of that is a rising grassroots protest initiative on the part of a lot of people in Japan who, have, uh, who no longer trust the government and they certainly don't trust information coming from TEPCO or other uh, utilities. And they're starting to do things that this generation has never seen starting to do things like protest. They're, go, they're taking up what's called citizen science. They're driving around with Geiger counters and, and gathering data on radiation levels all across the country and uploading it to uh, publicly accessible web platforms. They are um, starting new NGOs, new MPOs, new uh, transnational and international uh, relations are being forged as a result of uh, cynicism and dissatisfaction with, with the status quo. Hmm.
0: So you said it was a man-made not a natural disaster. It should
4: not have happened. Uh, so there was, Even it, with
0: the tsunami, even with the terrible earthquake and so on. If the if appropriate safety standards were which, in place when this was
4: That's great. Built. Well, well what everyone was told is that those were in place. Yeah. And that uh the, the plant was safe because of the high levels of safety standards and because of the uh, the high level of education of the plant workers that they were ready to respond. Um, What transpired, only 6% of casualties actually happened because of the quake, stark contrast to Haiti. The rest of the 20,000 or so people who were killed were killed by the tsunami that that rushed in. Um, But one of the reactors was actually melted down because of the quake damage and not because of the tsunami. They were absolutely not ready.
0: Wow, so um, what what do we know about the, um, you know, in addition to what you've said in regard to the people going around with their own Geiger counters and, and double checking on government numbers or whatever, what do we know about the personal and psychological state of Japanese people who were obviously not going to see the kind of life again in that area near Fukushima that they had right. enjoyed
1: for
4: it's generations? The, the level of trauma is profound. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial, and this is something perhaps you could speak to as well about um, how there's the initial response to rescue missions and then after that the long-term care for those who are traumatized by loss and also other forms of of post-traumatic stress. That's certainly what's been happening. One of the Fukushima specific things is that um, families have been split apart and are forced to hold up two households. the, The pattern that's generally taken is that Mothers with children are living very far away in different parts of the country for fear of exposing their kids to radiation, while fathers who have or are making the money for the family are forced to commute into dangerous areas to keep uh, keep the family livelihood flowing, mm-hmm. and so these this has created a further level of stress, yeah. uh, which is specific to that area.
0: Mm-hmm. And and how much um, does a resident of Tokyo? I mean, obviously very aware that this has all happened, and certainly you know feel the, the pain of it in the way that many of us who live in Iowa might feel the pain of a 9-11. But yeah. um, did it affect the lives of people in Tokyo, or does it still?
4: Enormously. Hmm. Uh, the initial impact was absolutely huge. Um, people who could leave did. If they, uh, um, there's, and, and today, people don't trust uh, produce, fish, oh. rice. In other words, the absolute staples of the diet. Um, their their uh, prices of these have skyrocketed. There have been increases in uh, consumption tax as a result to, co- to cover the costs that have been accrued. Uh, the disaster is the most expensive in human history. Uh, yeah. The price tag before Fukushima was two hundred and thirty billion U.S. dollars. So, um, and a lot of that is, of course, addressed to the loss of manufacturing power in the yeah. northeast of Japan.
0: Yeah. So, so for the Japanese economy, I don't know if you would have the this in in. Uh, if you would be able to share this with us or not, but the in this global economic kind of downturn or topsy-turvy situation we're living in right now, what is the Japanese economy like? And if you could say before the whole um, earthquake happened and then in this last year, do you know anything about how their economy is doing?
5: Well, I, I'll admit to, to not being an expert on, mm-hmm. on the Japanese economy, but uh, the earthquake clearly had a global impact uh, on, on economies. Uh, and you, 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 know, you sort of start with Toyota as an example. Uh, Toyota is sort of well known for having their, their suppliers close. So they have a, you know, their, their main assembly plant in Japan is, is based in Toyota City even mm-hmm. with suppliers very close to it. So they can do numerous of these just-in-time deliveries every day. Well, it turns out those are really their first-tier suppliers. Mm-hmm. And the, the suppliers that supply their suppliers and, and sort of on down were, we're often in this, this devastated area and as a result uh, you know that really disrupted uh, supply for Toyota. Well it turns out in in the world economy where we are interconnected and certainly uh, you know firms have have outsourced uh, a lot of their activities uh, you know not not only did the Japanese companies you know Honda and Nissan use these suppliers but American suppliers use them uh, particularly for paint. So this had an enormous impact, even on production in the U.S., yeah. and uh, so that there was, the, there was this ripple effect uh, across mm-hmm. uh, the world economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you know, just outside of the the tsunami and earthquake, you know, the issue that that they're facing now is that the yen, particularly relative to the dollar, is extraordinarily high. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is many uh, Japanese manufacturing firms. Uh, imp- and, and notably Nissan and Honda moving more and more production out of Japan and quite often into the US market, which is, of mm-hmm. course, the US, the largest auto market in the world. Toyota, interestingly, has not made that uh, as, as big a move as, as those other companies yet. Mm-hmm. But um, you know it, it has affected their, their profit yeah. uh, with the high yen.
0: Hmm. Any sort of concluding comments, anything else you'd like to say related to Fukushima or the current state of Japan.
5: Well,
4: this is a, a real pivotal moment in, in the modern history of Japan. Um, there's, in the way that people think of 9-11, people are actually using the term 3-11, uh, yeah. and there is a sort of pre- and post-feel to it, and only time will tell what the legacy of this will be.
6: Yeah, And I wanted just to echo something he mentioned earlier about the psychological impact. And I said earlier they were prepared for an earthquake in terms of procedures. They weren't prepared for the earthquake, tsunami, and a nuclear mm-hmm. meltdown combination, which I agree yeah. is, was totally something they were not prepared for. And it does seem to be something you see over and over that it created a lot of people being very fearful, and they think one of the relief efforts is a lot of psychological support. So yeah, I can I totally imagine. agree with that.
0: Well, I want to say thank you so much, Levy McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin, and uh, Ann Campbell and Barry Thomas. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And so I'd like to invite our last uh, group of guests up. We have uh, Sonia Ryang and Carol Grant, and you may. Hidaka and uh, Downing Thomas will be joining us as well. Uh, in this last segment of the program, we're going to focus on uh, some of the many connections between Iowa and Japan, and we have a really wonderful group of people here uh, with us. And uh, Downing Thomas is just to my uh, left here. He's Associate Provost and Dean of International Programs at the University of Iowa. Thanks for coming, uh, Downing. And uh, Carol Grant is just next to him. She's Executive Director of Iowa Sister States. Thanks, Carol, for coming. And hi, Sonia. Sonia Riang is a Professor of Anthropology and the Director of International Programs Center for Asian and Pacific Studies. Thanks for being here. And at the far end is Yume Hideka, who's the Japan Outreach Initiative Coordinator, who's been uh, working with us in international programs and traveling all over the state for the last almost two years now, and it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much, Yume. So I I want to start with you, Downing. You have just come back from a trip to Japan with uh, members of the U.S. Center for Citizen Diplomacy and the J Center that is now... uh, uh, part of that group and um, first of all I'd like you to sort of share your impressions of Japan and the the uh, educational colleagues you worked with there and then also talk a little bit about um, opportunities to study Japan and Japanese culture here at the university.
7: Yeah well oh, thanks uh, you know, just back uh, about a week I think Carol uh, even less than that <laughs> uh, so the the J Center if I could maybe start yeah. start there the J Center is the result of a grant from the Japan Foundation to uh, essentially create a database uh, of connections between U.S. activities and organizations and, and partners in Japan ranging across uh, business, uh, education, K-12, through higher education, uh, community groups, uh, so everything from uh, oh, bonsai uh, growers in Bemidji uh, to uh, high schools and and middle schools that have partner institutions in Japan, and so the idea of the J Center is to uh, gather this information in one database for the Midwestern states, and to um, uh, encourage people to uh, come see the the activities that are going on. So by gathering the information, we can uh, better understand where the connections are and build on those connections and uh, create potentially more connections. My uh, own background doesn't involve Japan. This was my first trip to Japan, in fact, so I have no authority whatsoever on the topic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but learned a a lot. And certainly the disasters of 311 uh, came up at every single meeting, Mm -hmm. I believe, that we we Mm -hmm. attended, whether it was with the Embassy in uh, Tokyo, or with uh, Joetsu University of Education, our, our partner institution uh, in, in Japan with the College of Education here at the University of Iowa. Uh, in fact, we'll have some faculty members uh, here uh, this week, this, this coming week, uh, from Joetsu uh, with student teachers to go to some area schools. Uh, to visit, uh, visit those and I hope in, in the future what we're hoping to establish is uh, a reciprocal flow of student teachers from our College of Education mm-hmm. here at the University of Iowa to uh, Joetsu uh, City mm-hmm. and the region uh, to be able to teach in, uh, in English-speaking schools in uh, in that area uh, and have some support from mm-hmm. the University of, of, of Education there in Joetsu.
0: Yeah, terrific. Well, you mentioned that Carol was on this trip as well, so I'll, I'll just turn it to you for a second, uh, uh, Carol. And was this your first trip to Japan? or It was to... my second
2: trip. Second, yeah, uh-huh.
0: yeah, yeah. Well, we have lots of things to talk about what the Iowa Sister States is,
2: first of all. Perhaps I'll just ask you to tell us what your organization does. Certainly. Uh, Iowa Sister States manages Iowa's eight international partner state relationships. And our relationship with Japan is the oldest, longest standing uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's got a uh, uh, it's got a great story. The genesis of that relationship goes back to uh, 1959. It's kind of a classic Iowa kind of story. Uh, a uh, Iowa farmer stationed in the Air Force in Japan at that time learned of. Uh, disaster, uh, back-to-back typhoons that had occurred in Yamanashi Prefecture. And those uh, disasters uh, were devastating to the livestock, uh, the the crops, uh, homes. Um, Many people lost their lives, and so he felt real empathy as a uh, farmer. So he uh, wrote back home and enlisted uh, fellow Iowa farmers in donating hogs. Uh, And this became the Iowa Hog Lift. And in in January of uh, 1960, 35 Iowa hogs were flown by the US Air Force to Yamanashi. uh, And about 1,500 uh, tons of corn were shipped so that they had enough to eat uh, until the crops uh, um, were replenished in, uh, in Yamanashi. And uh, the, the pork now available in, in Japan has uh, genetic uh, precursors to those original 35 yeah. Iowa hogs. Yeah. It's a great story. It's terrific, terrific. The, um, the reaction of Yamanashi uh, w- from this gift uh, was in 1962, they sent a bronze temple bell to Iowa. And that bell has been uh, ensconced in a structure on the south grounds of the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines uh, since that time. And uh, in their appreciation, uh, the bell is of course gorgeous. And on all around the outside of the bell, the story is retold in both uh, Japanese and in English. The mm-hmm. story of the uh, the devastation and the the reaction that Iowans helped yeah. out.
0: Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that in May there's going to be a celebration of another sort. Yes,
2: yes. Uh, We celebrated the 50th anniversary with Yamanashi last summer and uh, rededicated uh, the bell uh, after doing some uh, refurbishing of the structure and the surrounding gardens. Uh, Prior to that, we found an opportunity and submitted uh, an application to uh, to um, be considered uh, for a gift of cherry blossom trees. Uh, 2012 is the 100th anniversary of the original gift of cherry blossom trees to Washington, D.C., those gorgeous trees around the Tidal Basin. And uh, th- those were, of course, a gift from Japan in 1912. And so in honor of the um, 100th anniversary, Japan wanted to give cherry blossom trees to select other cities. And uh, Des Moines, the Japanese bell of peace and friendship on the uh, Capitol grounds, is one of those sites. And so we will be receiving 20 cherry blossom trees in the spring. And uh, we will celebrate uh, our sakula celebration Uh, will be in conjunction with uh, the Asian... Uh, the Iowa Asian Festival on uh, May 12th. And uh, so it's a great celebration uh, all day long, and our uh, sakula celebration will take place that afternoon at the Bell. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, let me just move down the
0: line here and talk a little bit to Sonia Rang. Hi, Sonia. Thank Hello. you. Thank you for writing the commentary that appeared in the paper earlier this week that I uh, spoke a little bit about the topics we were covering tonight. You are the head of the Center for Asian and Pacific Studies here at the University of Iowa, and you're an anthropologist as well. And, um, you know, I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing to have a, a Center for Asian Pacific mm-hmm. Studies here. So what does that really add to the university or to okay. our outreach on these topics beyond our own sure. campus?
8: Well, um, Center for Asian and Pacific Studies, in acronym it's called CAPS, is under international programs. There are so many, very many exciting things happening in CAPS. Well, there are a few missions that I want to mention. First of all, we the center support the uh, research and teaching for the faculty, not just any s- specific college, but the university as a whole. And then secondly, um, we do a lot of the, uh, let's say, promotion about Asia and teaching and researching about Asia on campus and outside. And accordingly, we do a lot of outreach activities. And in fact, we for the, the last um, two or three years, we've worked very closely with the uh, Iowa school teachers um, if I can mention that the, um, currently, between 500 and 600 high school students in the state of Iowa are learning Japanese. <laughs> it, this, is, this is actually a very big number, considering only 1.7% of Iowa's population can trace Asian heritage. <laughs> I, I'm not just talking about Japanese, but Asian heritage. It's 1.7%. So, so we want to be prepared for these uh, high school graduates who want to come here and pursue their interest in Japan and Japanese culture and language. Um, well, there is the most recent thing that I can actually tell you, the, the, that the workshop that we are anticipating. At this point, we're still in preparation, but the, um, it's very close to completion in terms of preparation. We are um, organizing a workshop on WEB Du Bois and Japan. Do you know who W.E.B. Du Bois Mm -hmm. is? Yes, he was a pre-war African-American thinker. Very highly educated man, profound thinker. Now, he saw a real potential in brotherhood of people of color between African-Americans and Japanese in the pre-war context. Um, He visited Japan, actually, in the 1930s. And he wrote about Japan in a very praising tone. And at the same time, he saw China or other colonized or semi-colonized parts, uh, colonized by Japan, other parts of Asia that are semi-colonized by Japan, or completely colonized by Japan, um, in a little inferior manner, in, in a little inferior light, he thought Japan was much more advanced. It's a very controversial thinking, but it, it gives us very interesting angle to think about Japan in the pre-war context, in, in c- close connection to the US. We are having a workshop on Japan and African America uh, it's set on April 19th. I'm still trying to figure out the, the final details of visitors uh, from outside and also the everyone <laughs> from campus uh, invited. So mm-hmm. I will, of course, circulate the uh, announcement more formally through Joan, mm-hmm. Joan's <laughs> office, but um, please look forward to that. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that we do.
0: Yeah, and you've just celebrated or in the middle of celebrating your 25th anniversary year. That's right. Yes, we
8: actually uh, we just discovered that the center is um, this this year is actually center's 25th anniversary since its uh, foundation. Um, So we designated this year's speaker series as 25th anniversary speaker series. Now we are going to actually carry it through to the um, September and um, October and November. So this entire, this year, 2012, will be Center's 25th Anniversary Year Speaker Series. We have a lot of really um, heavyweight, if you like, intellectual leaders in this um, area of Asian studies from across the country. So please, um, I will again circulate the, uh, make sure that the announcement will, will reach you.
0: So please follow us. <laughs> thank you. Good. Thank you, thank you. And uh, and Downey, I might just turn back to you for a second, ask you to talk a little bit about internationalization here at, at our campus, the University of Iowa.
7: Mm-hmm. Well, there's a great deal of growth right now uh, and interest in uh, academic opportunities abroad, but also just learning more about other cultures and how to uh, connect with uh, with people in, in different parts of the world. I'd say Uh, One of the things, going back to the trip in in Japan, that we learned is that there's a great deal of concern in Japan about uh, both the declining uh, population with the very slow uh, rate of uh, population replacement in Japan compared to other uh, uh, industrialized uh, nations, and in addition, a declining uh, rate of studying abroad uh, by Japanese students. We heard that both in our meeting uh, at the Ministry of Education and at the embassy, and so uh, both on the U.S. side and the Japanese side, there's a great deal of interest in creating opportunities for exchanges uh, and study abroad. Um, in fact, the the embassy has stepped in. Uh, the normal organizations that do study abroad fairs for the U.S. Mm-hmm. for U.S. universities and colleges had really pulled out because of declining attendance and, and interest. Uh, and so uh, one of the things we heard is the need to reach out uh, and the need to um, encourage uh, US students to um, to travel abroad, to study abroad, to have internships and other kinds of experiences abroad um, in, in Japan uh, in particular, and that uh, we should look for ways to welcome uh, Japanese students here in the US.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. Well, I know that we have had our own uh, ambassador for Japan working with uh, particularly elementary age kids, but also other students and, and uh, you know senior centers, um, giving public library talks and so on for the last year and a half, and that is Yume uh, Hideka. And you are here as a, Jap- a Japan outreach initiative coordinator. Yes. And um, tell us about what you've been doing.
9: Okay, um, so I am in the program called Japan Outreach Initiative. We call it Joy program. Uh, the program is designed by uh, the Japan Foundation and the uh, Low institutions. institutions. Uh, it's a two years program um, to send the coordinator, uh, Japanese native coordinator, coordinators to the um, United States, uh, not West Coast, not East Coast, Uh, because majority of Japanese are already there. So sending coordinators to south, southern part of the United States and the Midwest uh, to develop deeper understanding about Japan. Uh, So I am here at University of Iowa to cover whole uh, state of Iowa. Uh, As John mentioned, K-12 schools, um, just uh, senior citizens, um, companies, public uh, lively everywhere um, to, to drive, visit, and talk about Japan.
0: You have put hundreds and hundreds of miles on your car in these two yes. years. You've been to lots of places I've never been, and I've grown up in Iowa, I lived here my whole life, so you have really been beating the pavement. And I see some of the letters that come back from teachers and the school kids who have enjoyed your presentation so much on Japan. What do you think they've enjoyed the most?
9: Well, um, so I... Um, visit both um, like uh, schools or communities around Iowa City, also uh, rural earlier schools um, so for example, Iowa city uh, it's a college town and uh, um, it 's a diversity uh, town so if you if I go to the Iowa City School district, um, I see many uh, ethnicity students, um, but for example, uh, going to the rural, rural earlier schools. Um, I just visited um, a small town called Charlington last week.
0: Sheraton. Uh Chariton, yes.
9: uh Uh, It's about two and a half hours driving from here. Uh, But I had a uh, wonderful experience because uh, whole school, uh, I mean classroom, uh, no other ethnicities, but all the Caucasian students. Um, Also, uh, when I asked about like, do you know about sushi? Do you like sushi? They have no idea what is sushi. Um, Students here, Iowa City, yes, they say, yeah, I love sushi. Or some students say, no, I don't like them. But they already (laughs) knew what what they are. But those earlier students have no idea what is sushi. So um, I bring um, the culture and some information to introduce those kids. And then I am always hoping that in the future they remind me and um, try to travel or study abroad um, or just think about what it is Japan. Sure, sure. Yeah. And some of the um, the uh,
0: presentations you make might relate to things like what a day is like in the life of a school uh, child in Japan. Yeah, uh, I've seen that presentation and. and you know, talk about some of the things that would be interesting to an American school kid. Um,
9: school life in Japan, uh, there are a lot of um, similarities and differences. Um, for example, I like talking about um, uh, cleanup time, for example. From uh, elementary school through high school, uh, all the kids, uh, we are required to clean up on classroom or any common space, hall, bathroom, outside, everywhere. Every school has like 15 to 20 minutes every day uh, for cleanup time. So every time I talk about this to the kids, all the kids, uh, of course, American kids, they say, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, I, of course, ending up, um, I always ask, uh, would you like to go to the school in Japan? And they say, no. <laughs> 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 well, it's only like, you know, some differences, but, uh, um, but uh, those are, uh, I think, you know, a, a lot of differences and then kids never had any idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, and, and you've uh, dressed the students or maybe their teachers in some of the traditional clothing, mm-hmm. and they enjoy that?
9: Yes, uh, sometimes I bring um, uniforms from school uh, in Japan or I bring uh, yukata, which is like a kimono made by cotton fabric, uh, and then try to put them on. And of course, big side.
0: Yeah, yeah. What has been your biggest surprise about about Iowa?
9: Oh, well, a lot of surprising. Um, Of course, this is my first time to live in the United States. Uh, I am, uh, I spent about 10 years living in Yokohama and working in Tokyo, so I know what big city is. Um, And um, I still remember the very first day when I arrived to Iowa. Actually, my previous uh, supervisor um, drove me over from Chicago because we had a training there, and she takes me she took me uh, i 80 and I was on the car never seen the cold farm uh, i mean corn farm Cornfield, yeah and I get really nervous like where's she taking me to <laughs> <laughs> and where I'm going to be. <laughs> Because of my life uh, in Metro uh, earlier was buildings, uh, all the public transportations, um, and almost never seen the huge uh, Midwest cornfield. So that was um, a lot of um, cu- kind of a culture shock for mm-hmm. me. But um, yeah, living life in here is it's a lot of comfortable.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you have next to you there some, some things that we should explain. Uh, that, should we start first with the poster board?
9: Okay, so those pictures, um, I get this uh, opportunity through the, um, the General Consulate of Japan at Chicago, but um, this is a picture from uh, kids, I mean students, at, affected earlier by earthquake and tsunami last uh, March 11th. It's been about one year and uh the the they draw um for for many different um, topics but uh, what they tried to send a message was um they want to uh, thank you to people around the world because um, the, those kids uh, still remember uh the about a year ago <coughs> sorry and um uh they appreciate people around the world for Donations um, for the surprise and uh, um, all the thought from the around the world. So um, they decided to start drawing for showing their appreciation. So I am trying to uh, share with uh, as, uh, many, as, uh, I- as many as as many Iowa community as I can. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I see that some of the other some of the drawings are about uh, imagining oneself ten years in the future. <coughs> And um, being happy again, being able to play outside again.
9: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Huh.
0: So when you go back to Japan uh, and and you continue your work there, uh, what do you expect to be doing?
9: Um, well, of course, I can't wait to eat real <laughs> uh, <laughs> Japanese food. <laughs> um, but uh, um, yes, um, I'm. I can wait to see my family. Uh, friends there to mm-hmm. share with my experience in Iowa because um, a lot of Japanese travel to you know, United States or um, um, any other other countries but uh, not all of them <laughs> or not most of them um, visit the Midwest or Iowa. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think um, I can talk about um, Iowa life and then to bring people over mm-hmm. in the future.
0: Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And a little later, we'll talk about the dolls, too. Sure. Uh, Sonia, let, let me ask you something about the Asian community in the Midwest, Asian community in Iowa. I know you do a lot of uh, work in your own anthropological area mm-hmm. um, about life for uh, Asians here in our state. And and I know that recently you were doing some work regarding health care access. Is there anything you can share on that? Yes. Um, Well, in terms of Japan, we really have very few people. But um,
8: Asian community in Iowa, although it is very small in number, but it's extremely diverse. And in some cases, only a few hundred people, they would speak their own language, and they will not be able to Communicate with other Asian communities, even when, for example, uh, people from Burma. There are many, many different ethnicities uh, from Burma. Uh, we have, we, we've accepted a few of them, uh, quite a few hundreds of them as refugees. And we continue to accept them as refugees from Burma. And of course, we are the first uh, state to have accepted the uh, Vietnamese refugees in the U.S. as well as um, the Tay people. They are the, um, uh, how can I say, ethnic minorities that existed in Vietnam. Well, they, they, they lost their kingdom long time ago, uh, a couple of centuries ago. And their original kingdom spread in the southern China, in Vietnam, and Thailand. So it's no longer actually coverable in, in a nicely in you know, a clean nation national state border. But anyway, um, m- lots of Thailand people were displaced in Laos. And then it was uh, the then governor, um,
0: not Lee anyway. Governor Ray.
8: Yes, Ray, mm-hmm. Governor Ray, yes, he accepted the, the lot of Titan people. In fact, Des Moines is the um, well let me put it this way, about 10,000 taidan people exist in live in the. US currently, but Des Moines has 8,500 taidan hmm. people. So I met um, let's say I conducted focus group of uh, Focusing on the diverse uh, ethnic ethnic groups, and then sometimes I had to put a few ethnic groups together because of the uh, number, the the balance. Um, it was very interesting. The I have to tell you, especially Southeast Asian people who came to the uh, U.S. and came to Iowa originally as refugees, they are very grateful. They are very very grateful for the state of Iowa for having accepted them from the. Um, you know, and rescued them from very hopeless situation. But I also have to say, um, because of that, and maybe maybe combined with their cultural um, tradition, they do not necessarily demand the rights or entitlement that I think they can. Some, sometimes they don't even try to claim the things that we normally can claim as citizens. They are, of course, fellow citizens. So I'm trying to figure out how to, for example, encourage um, elderly Asian um, agents, I O ones with Asian heritage, to go and have their health checked every year because they do not go see doctors unless they have some pain or they they got injured, for example. But annual care, annual, you know, the, the checkup is actually beneficial for them and also for our state economy and for everybody in the long run, as you know. So so these things, in order to let the, the people know these things, I am actually producing a booklet that consists of um, six different languages. And then I will print 700 of them. And currently, I am still designing the uh, text, what kind of content I should have in these booklets. So once that's done, I'm hoping that I'll be able to make some difference for the uh, people
0: um, of, of Iowa with Asian heritage. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And uh, and also, just thinking again of uh, Iowa's agricultural outreach and, and uh, clearly the importance of Asian markets, um, yeah. is there a lot happening at the state level here that anything that you can share with us regarding connections made between Iowa exporters? And I don't know if you know anything specifically about Japan, um, but but Asia okay. generally, I take it this is a big target market for?
8: I'm, I'm sure, and I, I should know better, but I actually don't know much about it. And the only thing I know is that we we export a lot of tractors to Japan. Now, of course, with the um, recent disaster situation, I am not sure mm-hmm. how things are changing. Um, as Levy said early on, the things are still very, very bad in Japan. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
0: And, and Carol, let's I talk a to little bit about, about my book. You know.
2: Yes, actually, it's not my book. I, I briefly recap the story of the. Um, Uh, the Yamanashi and Iowa relationship, and that story was captured uh, delightfully in a children's book called Sweet Corn and Sushi, and the author is Iowa City uh, native, uh, well, maybe not native, but Iowa native and now residing in Iowa City, uh, Lori Erickson, and it's illustrated uh, by Will Thompson, who is also here in Iowa City and the, uh, it, it tells the whole story of uh, the hog lift and the sister-state relationship, and it's written in both English and in Japanese, and it's uh, a grade-school-level book, so it's a delightful... Delightful story. And, and what's the name again? Sushi and Sweet Corn? Uh, sweet Corn and Sushi. Sweet corn and That's sushi. right. Wonderful. <laughs> That's great.
0: Well, so we have just a, a enough time to talk a little bit more about the sister-state relationship, what that really means. You said there
2: are eight? Um, there are eight. Uh, Iowa has currently has eight sister states, and uh, they vary in terms of um, how active they are, and the the relationship with Yamanashi is one of the most active ones, uh, as well as being the longest in duration. Um, The activities that go on between Iowa and uh, our various sister states can be, can can make the entire gamut of uh, range uh, from youth uh, delegations, Uh, we've had our Iowa soccer uh, Kids go to China and Japan, and uh, now they're heading to the Yucatan, which is another one of our sister states. Um, we have uh, cultural exchanges and uh, uh, cuisine exchanges, particularly with our sister state in Italy, uh, the Veneto region, and so they, it can just be of any uh, regard. Uh, and um, so it's very interesting mm-hmm. and very exciting and always that personal connection between Iowans and uh, the, the ordinary people in, in our uh, yeah. sister states. Yeah.
0: How, how does the relationship get established? Is this by uh, governor's proclamation?
2: Or? Y- yes. They, with, with one exception, they all are governor-to-governor um, agreements, and that's... Um, makes them official sister-state relationships. Mm -hmm. I mentioned one of them is an exception, and that is the Yucatan relationship. It came to being in 1964, so it's the second oldest one. As a result of the Kennedy administration, I believe it was Partners, let's see, Partners of the Alliance was the business uh, arm of uh, North American and South American trade, and they, he wanted a, public side, mm-hmm. and so the Partners of the Americas was started at that time, and Iowa was paired with Yucatan. I see. Yeah. So the others are all governor to governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, originated. Yeah. But then it goes all the way down to mm-hmm. to kids.
0: <laughs> but it comes back to this idea Downing was talking about cultural diplomacy, person-to-person yes. contacts yeah. being Absolutely. really Citizen the, sort of the most lasting way to...
2: Most often our visitors uh, stay in homes and Likewise, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, we go there, it, it does depend uh, mm-hmm. on the delegation, but that's really the best way to uh, mm-hmm. really get to know the other cultures yeah. to, to stay with Which them. Which
0: is actually what you're doing, right? You may. You mm-hmm. live with families during your two years here, you yes. have lived with a number of different families for a few months at a time. Mm-hmm. and. Some have children at home, some do not.
9: Yes. uh, Yeah, um, I requested actually uh, to stay with the homestay family because I think that's the best way to learn American culture. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, as we get ready to wrap up here, uh, describe these dolls that you have brought with you and and, uh, tell us, you know, what we're looking at.
9: Okay, um, tomorrow, March 3rd, is uh, Japanese Girls' Day. Uh, so we celebrate for girls, um, and the, the traditionally we display, we call it, uh, Hina Matsuri, uh, Hina doll. but, uh, this, uh, Girls' Day doll we display inside the house during the Girls' Day, uh, celebration, and then, um, just celebrate, enjoy eating, yeah. family gathering.
0: Yeah. So... I'm, I'm not sure I heard you correctly. Did you say Girls' Day? Girls',
9: girls Day. Day. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So the, these dolls are actually mine. Uh-huh. I act, um, asked my parents to send me over last year. Um, so I thought it would be great to share today yeah. with all. Uh, since tomorrow is Thursday. Sure. The first day.
0: Sure. And uh, the the man, the male doll, is that an emperor? Yeah, the man or?
9: doll is an uh, emperor, uh-huh. and the the woman is an uh, empress.
0: huh. And yes. can you can you tell us about the clothing?
9: Um, they're wearing well kimono, <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, usually the traditionally way the emperor employees were wear the many layers of kimono. Uh-huh. so
0: yeah, yeah, and so most families would have uh, a, a celebration doll like this, or, or just children would.
9: Oh, just two yeah. So the family has a girls' child. Um, they usually play um, paper mm-hmm. for the celebrations. Um, I do remember my parents. Uh, got this for me when I was maybe first grade of elementary yeah. school.
0: Yeah, you know, we were talking earlier about religion, religious celebrations. I don't know if you would care to share something from your family or families you know um, about the discussion about uh, Buddhism and family practices of religion and so on. Is there any observation you can make?
9: Um, well, I <laughs> grew up um, maybe unusual um, uh, family background, but, uh, my father is a Buddhism. My mom, my mom is a Christianity Christian. One percent of whole uh, Japanese population. But uh, um, so uh, I went to. Uh, I, I'm I'm I describe myself as a non-religion person. But uh, I went to the uh, the Catholic high school and university. Uh, spent four years in the. Uh, Catholic dormitory with a nuns. <laughs> so I have uh, a yeah, uh, kind of unique um, uh, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else we've been talking
0: about tonight that when you hear it uh, from your cultural background? Well, yeah, well, yeah. of
9: course, I agree with all the professors, but um, my experience is a little bit different. So mm-hmm. I go to church, I play. Uh, but the other hand, um, we go to tempo, <laughs> um, play. So uh-huh. there, there is some unique um, aspect. But yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with the yeah. professors, yes.
0: And you hosted a Japanese film festival earlier in the year that received a, a lot of interest from students. You had large crowds there to watch these four films that oh, yeah. uh, that you brought in. And they had great names, Kamikaze mm-hmm. Girl or?
9: Yes, yeah? uh, last November, um, I got an uh, opportunity f- uh, through the Japan Foundations to have a Japanese film event. And we played uh, four different uh, movies at the Visual in the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great um, e- experience as yeah. well. Um, a lot of uh, ja- uh, students from UI, also uh, the public people uh, mm-hmm. attended there. It mm-hmm. was really successful.
0: Hmm. Well, I, I want to say thank you to all of you for coming and everybody who was on the program earlier. Thank you so much. We have, I think, come close to the end of our program here, so I want to remind you that this program will be um, available on uh, television, on UITV, if you would like to watch it again, also on uh, Iowa Public Radio and KRUI. World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Production partners are UI TV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services, and um, we will be posting this program on iTunes in just the next few days. Please join us on April 13th at 5 o'clock in this room for our next World Canvas and the topic that night is Global Science Fiction. So um, many thanks to all of you, Downing Thomas, Carol Grant, Sonia Riang, and Yume Hidaka, And uh, thanks to all of you who've come here to join us this evening. Thanks to Mike McBride and his team at UITV. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Good night. <laughs>